I'm happy to introduce filmmaker and editor Mallory Yarnell, who is on the ground level of creating her documentary, Out of Frame, which is about the rich history of women film editors in Hollywood. Welcome, Mallory, to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to dive into so many things that you do. You've worked in the editorial department on more than 20 TV series, including Arrested Development, Mythic Quest, Rabbit Hole, and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia on its upcoming 16th season. How did you get hired as an assistant editor to Mythic Quest, and did that lead you to It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Um, That's actually exactly what led me to It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It was kind of a long road for me to get to Mythic Quest, um, just because for a long time I started out in the reality side of things. As many people have had this journey before, it is pretty tough kind of making the transition from reality to scripted. I would say that there is kind of a bias going on, you know, when uh, somebody sees a full resume of reality, they haven't really seen anything scripted on there yet. They're kind of, you know, questioning whether you know that workflow, whether you're up to the task, and which is totally understandable, but it makes it kind of a tough road for us reality folks to switch over if you ever want to. So through just sheer determination, you know, I kept sending my resume out. Luckily, I found this posting, which was for the new Hellraiser that came out in 2022, directed by David Bruckner. I saw a post on, luckily, in our our guild we have, uh, which is MPEG, or Motion Picture Editors Guild, we have a website that has a job board, and um, it has very, you know, specialized jobs that are tailored to the things that you kind of put in your resume and add into your cover letter and things like that. So I came across this Hellraiser job and it was specifically for a second assistant editor. And they were really looking for someone who was pretty green in that sense of being on the narrative side, you know, because I would I would be doing a lot of AKA the grunt work, <laughs> which is uh, most of the scripting for the whole entire film. What scripting is, is when you take the script for a film or a television show and you actually import it into your ALE or editing system, which is Avid or Premiere for most people. Most of us, it's Avid in the in the industry or scripted television shows. Once you import that script in, you can actually line up your scenes uh, according to that script and make marks so that your editor goes through, clicks on that script, and every take that says that line is just pulled up right there for him. So that's that's one of the big things that you do as an assistant editor in narrative um, is scripting. I mean, it's huge and you got to be pretty fast at it. So I when I came across this ad, I knew that I had uh, scripting experience from a lot of other shows that I had worked on in movies in the past, um, just working at post-production houses mainly. So I was like, you know, I'm I'm definitely the person for this job, somebody who's kind of green, but I know how to script and I want to learn and I want to move up. That's exactly why they hired me, because they really wanted, you know, they're looking through resumes and they saw that this would have been my first kind of breakthrough in the narrative world. So David Marks, who was the editor on that film, he really wanted to give someone a chance. So that's how I got that job. In the past, I had applied for a job uh, with this editor named Scott Draper, and it was for the comeback of Nash Bridges. Um, But at that time, this was pre-Hellraiser. I didn't really have any of that scripted experience, but, you know, we we really connected when we had an interview, and he was like, I really want to hire you, but I'm not seeing enough experience, but... If you get out there, you get yourself some scripted experience, I would love to hire you on something else. You know, after I got Hellraiser, it was much easier for me to apply for those scripted jobs. And then once I sent my resume out, I got another Netflix job called Mo, um, which was a season of a show with a comedian who was, um, he was hilarious. He's from Texas and he has um, a crazy refugee story um, (laughs) where he ended up as a fish out of water in Texas. So I got that show and then out of the blue, I get a call from Scott Draper again and he's like, hey, did you get some of that scripted experience? Because I've got a show coming up that I think you might be great for. And I was like, actually, I did. You know, I got I got Hellraiser. I got this other comedy show. 
he was like, well, I'm going to work on this uh, show called Mythic Quest. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And I was like, uh, yes, I'm absolutely familiar with it. I would love to. You know, after I had gotten uh, that scripted experience, uh, he felt comfortable with sending my resume into the higher ups or, you know, the producers of the show and the executive producers. Because one of the things is just because an editor wants to hire you does not mean that you have the experience that's okay with the producer and or the director or the executives of the show. And you don't, you know, always get that job because of that reason. Um, So that, you know, I've been burned by that in the past where somebody says, you know, I really want to hire you, but I showed my resume to so-and-so and and you just don't have enough experience. And it's like, oh, it's just, it's, it crushes you, you know, but it's really just about getting that experience. And I think just by persevering, by continually sending your resume out and just finally getting that breakthrough, I think you can do it by, you know, just taking that path, like, you just can't give up, honestly, <laughs> until until somebody gives you that chance. Yeah, then Scott hired me for Mythic Quest. And then um, once you're on Rob's team and he likes you, it's kind of like a, you know, a straight shot to Always Sunny, which is his, that's his baby, you know? <laughs> no, that show, I remember the first time I saw it too, and I was like, what the hell is this? You know, like, right? it's just yeah. so out there, right? And I feel that Danny DeVito has really upped the game of that show. I mean, I liked it before he was on it, but I think he just is so meant to play that role. So I just, and all of them together. And it's so cool how everyone has now gone off and done other films. You know, they are all brilliant with comedy. And I, I, I mean, I completely agree. I, you know, um, I got to meet Glenn and Charlie just once briefly, just because um, this past season, it was kind of cut short for them because of the writer's strike. They had to stay out of the office on the side of the writers, you know, so um, it was kind of (laughs) it was kind of a weird season for me to start on because I was like, oh, man, I don't get to work with everybody for the whole season, you know, because of the strike. But but it was still great. And then um, seeing Danny's dailies all the time is just, it it has you in tears, honestly, when you're sitting there. And I I have to watch everything as an assistant and mark everything, which I don't mind because I, you know, there are times when I would, and this is rare that I do this, but there were times when I would go in those dailies and just put a marker, like, you know, I'd leave my editor a marker that says crying, laughing or something like, and I don't typically do that, but with somebody like Danny DeVito, I would just because of the things that he did. And um, he was just, uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think he honestly, when he got on the show, he brought everyone else's game up to the next level because I, I see how they work with him and the way that they speak with him. And I know that they admire him so much. Um, and I know that Rob is a longtime fan of um, Cheers and uh, a taxi, uh, definitely. So I know that he's, you know, he's picturing Louis De Palma back on taxi when, when he's working with Danny DeVito and he's like, oh my God, how did I get here? You know, like he's still very, um, he's still very humble about that. You know, I just, I, I saw a post from Rob recently where he was, he was sitting next to Ted Danson kind of showing him Wrexham highlights and he was like, they say never meet your heroes, but they're wrong, you know? And I was like, that's <laughs> that's awesome, you know? Like, he's he's still very humble about, you know, like, um, his roots and where he came from. And he's he's an awesome boss to work for. Um, I, I would say he's he's probably my favorite that I've ever had. So it's, it's a fun environment, and it's a good group of people to work with um, on a daily basis. And then, yeah, like I said, the, these people making me laugh hysterically is is just a bonus. So, I know I can't even imagine like if just doing a day of work where you're just laughing the whole time on cut after cut after cut, and um, and then getting just the opportunity you did step into editing one of the episodes. So that must have felt so amazing to actually not have to log it, but to actually put it together what happened there how did you get bumped up um it was just a fortunate accident which this happens often during um seasons of shows for a lot of assistants you know 
our executive producer of Wrexham, who's also an editor on Mythic Quest and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, he was kind of being pulled away for those Wrexham games and putting that show together. So there was um, one episode in particular that they needed help on. You know, I hear Jeff out there in the hallway saying like, oh, maybe we should offer it to Mallory. And I'm like, yes, you should. <laughs> um, so I, I I, immediately just was, uh, I volunteered and I was like, I can help in any way possible if you need me to do the whole episode. So basically what I did was uh, I just put together my rough cut and then, you know, everybody watched it. And what was great is getting everybody's positive feedback. I mean, just hearing people laugh or telling me that I was crying laughing when I saw this one cut that you did. And I was like, oh, well, that makes me feel amazing. You know, it's just a, just on a basic level to just make someone laugh with something that I put together was it was a great feeling. And I felt like at that point I had gotten really fast. You know, um, it, it's a lot of your time in comedy editing in particular is just moving quickly. It's tempting to sit there and mull over certain takes and be like, well, I don't know if that's the best take. I just don't know. But in reality, uh, you need to just put that cut out there. Just get a string out going, get a basic cut going, and then you can get go back through and just start to change at that point, fine tune, and then get the jokes in that you want. Once uh, you put out your editor's cut it goes uh then through the director and then um through producers which are rob charlie and glenn so they're typically when a strike isn't happening they're always in the office and they're fine-tuning the episode with the editor in the in the chair you know so any kind of notes they want to incorporate like hey i remember this joke from set that it made us laugh like really really hard can we try that you know um they sit there with you and then we, you know, we try stuff. So I didn't get to do that this season, unfortunately, but hopefully, you know, in the future when um, when you turn in a cut and it gets to the producer level, I'll get to uh, be the one in the chair and um, doing notes with them. But, you know, they have a very set and specific vision for the show that they've, you know, manifested from the get go. So they're very familiar with the show and the especially the characters what what I find amazing about this group of people the five of them in particular is that they all are very aware of what their characters would do at any given moment you know like I'll I'll see uh Glenn or Charlie stop and he'll say something Charlie will say something like oh uh Charlie wouldn't say that or he wouldn't do that or Glenn will be like, yeah, I agree. Like, uh, we need to change that line because uh, uh, Mac wouldn't respond that way. Or, you know, they're they're very aware of their characters of, as who they are. And they've they've built them from the ground up. And they're all they're all in when they're when they're acting. I would say they're the most they're the most all in group of people that I've seen on a on a set. And it's really amazing to watch, actually. Um, and the one I will say who holds strong, um, who never really breaks, is Caitlin. Um, the guys are always breaking, but Caitlin, she stays strong. And uh, uh, Danny, Danny doesn't break a lot either. But um, but Rob, Charlie, and Glenn, they they can uh, get each other laughing and giggling when they're trying stuff, and it's like it, it's kind of nonstop. But it's it's pretty funny to watch as well. Yeah, the whole ensemble, I would love to just spend a day with all of them, writing it, coming up with the skits, and then filming it. Oh, my God, that must be so much fun just to be with them because they're really, I just, smart comes to the mind. Just smart writing, just witty, uh, the Absolutely. timing, everything. It takes a really uh, smart group of writers to write really good dumb people um, because it's a hard thing to do, you know, because um, somebody could just be dumb or act dumb and it's not very funny. You know, it's very dependent on people's delivery and if they've built these characters the way that they have. And Glenn has this uh, or uh, uh, I'm sorry, Dennis has this backstory. I'll just use their character names because th they've formed them so well. But um, there's this underlying thing that he may just be a serial killer, you know, like it's it's right. very like beneath the surface, but he's just he lets little things out here and there, you know, but it's like 
um, it's built throughout the series and they're always well aware of that, you know? And um, I think uh, that's how I approached it uh, editing the show as well. I, I've seen so many episodes of it and I approached it in a sense of like, well, what would a normal Always Sunny episode look like, you know? And I just kind of did those things because I, I just had it in my mind because I've seen so many episodes of it. Not a lot of people can do that, you know? It's it's a very specific type of improv, and um, I think camaraderie comes in uh, as a big part of it as well for them because they've done it for so long. I mean, it's been about 20 years, I think, now that they've been on a set together and have that rapport, so it's very easy for them to just riff off each other and and make make the show even funnier. Can you kind of give me some examples like with cutting for comedy or is there a different flow of editing for a comedy? You have to cut quicker or anything that you can kind of give us as some tips when you're cutting comedy versus like a horror drama might have something different you're going to think about. I would say when you're approaching comedy, I think and my editor usually tells me this as well, and he's very well versed in comedy editing and horror actually which is kind of how we connected um, we're, we kind of go back and forth between the same things but you kind of approach it as uh, the least amount of cuts that can get the story told but I think when a cut is important is maybe after a punchline or sometimes the cut is the punchline and I, I find that to be very funny sometimes um, which I, I I used in my cut but it got changed in the final process I would say cutting a lot is just really interrupting the flow of the scene. I try to come in usually on something wide so you can see, you know, establish what's happening. And then once I start cutting um, the actual dialogue, I feel like I'm cutting more as their conversation, like trying to cut with the flow of their conversation. And maybe sometimes you cut away when someone's talking and you're looking at a reaction shot, but it's only when you get some kind of golden reaction shot from the other actor. But for the most part, I'm kind of staying on the actor who's speaking and then trying to just, I really want the cuts to be invisible. I just want you to see a conversation. When that punchline hits, that's when you want to do that hard cut. And and that's when the laugh comes because... Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people do this as well. One of my favorite punchlines or a cut that people use that I think instantly makes people laugh is someone, they could be potentially getting hurt at the end of a scene or they're just screaming about something. They're like, ah, and then it cuts in the middle of the scream. So, and it just creates like this thing of like, wait, what? <laughs> that, that, that scream was just like out of nowhere and just funny, you know? And it's just because that cut was there that it kind of drew your attention to that in a different way that if you just let that screen play out, it it might not be that funny just because, you know, maybe the person really is hurt, but we're cutting before we actually see it. So it's kind of like um, it's kind of an interesting thing with comedy. You do you do want to cut at key times, but I feel like less is more just because I don't really want to draw attention to my cuts um, as opposed to if I were editing a horror film or like I just watched Psycho on the big screen for the hundredth time <laughs> as, a, as a great example, that has, I can't remember how many hundreds of cuts just in the shower scene alone. And I think that's merited just because it's creating this effect. It's creating this d disillusioning effect. And you're like, oh, what is going on? There's... Uh, is this woman dying? Like uh, all we see is body parts and a knife and it's just quick, quick, quick cuts. And you're, you're kind of trying to see what's happening, but you can't really, and you're trying to like wrap your head around it. But I think with comedy, it's just more straightforward. Like you just, you want the actors to do their job too. Cause the actors are providing the comedy at the end of the day however they're delivering it or whatever joke they're telling or even physical comedy as well. Um, and you can enhance things like add crazy sound effects or um, silly sound effects and things like that or visual effects that are maybe funny like in the scene. But at the end of the day, you really want to 
you do want to get your best performance and that's what you're mainly cutting around. I know a lot of people who they'll put maybe two or three versions of a joke into a, a rough cut just so that you can see how different versions of the joke play out. I try not to do that as much just because I think it's a, it's a little bit confusing and distracting the first time you see it. And I'd rather just maybe address that in the notes later. I would say, yeah, it's just uh, it's just making a conversation as smooth as possible with the funniest performances as possible. I go through and I every take that I choose is the one that made me laugh the most. Even if it doesn't work with the previous uh, cut, like maybe something's off continuity wise, I still put the funniest thing in there regardless. And then I'll just work around that later because um, there's always something you can do, like maybe throw in a split screen and just cut somebody out who doesn't belong there or throw another shot in between that maybe separates that continuity error a little bit. I go for performance based, like best performance, and then just smoothing that down into the best conversation possible. Yeah, I like that you said that. Um, I was just thinking, you know, because performance is everything like Arrested Development. I mean, that show, hilarious, the way they would zoom in, then zoom out, and then reveal just so well done to like a documentary style show, you know, like you're kind of the camera person's just catching this scenarios. And I thought, wow, well done. But you sometimes had to hold on the character and then you're laughing. I mean, they I thought they did a brilliant job of um, creating creating another shit show of a family, you know, and yes. how they, you know, interact with each other and stuff. So and it's all in maybe camera movements, too, you know, like zooming in, zooming out. Now, absolutely. Um, I'm not saying that that's uh, it's sunny in in Philadelphia. That's more like on the roof. Just the dynamics of all of them and their crazy ideas. Hey, we yes. should do this. Mm -hmm. And then everybody's like getting involved in it. And then it yes. turns out it's a terrible idea. But um, yeah, so I think you're absolutely correct on just, you know, I loved how you said that about, you know, you have to make the cut seamless so that you're having this conversation back and forth versus wait a minute why are we still here I want to see what the other person's doing you just you know flow in who would you want to see as people are talking like it sounded like you that's what you were saying absolutely yes and I mean the last thing you want your audience to do especially in a comedy is get bored you know and there's a lot of um there are a lot of scenes that just get cut entirely just because it's just uh, trimming the fat in a sense. And, you know, it it sucks because some some directors or actors, they get precious about certain scenes. And then, you know, Rob's like, no, we got to cut that out for time because it's just not important, you know. <laughs> but um, uh -huh. at the end of the day, you want to just make the, the best and funniest and... Um, I would say tightest show possible as well. Like you don't, like they say, they call it trimming the fat. You don't want all this extra stuff that's just kind of lingering in the air that's not funny. Um, and it's like, if if somebody is having a conversation that's not moving the story forward really, or you don't really need it, it just needs to go because um, comedies are also, they're light in general. You know, you don't want to be weighed down by longer scenes that, have nothing to do with the overall story so they're and they're very focused on um especially in a comedy like mythic quest that is um an entire storyline that plays out from season to season and um they touch back on things in the past so every the whole world is kind of built so you can't really you can't just go in and kind of do your own thing you kind of have to direct and edit within that world and what moves that particular story forward like this last season I have no idea what's going to go on in the next season but it looks like you know there's going to be a breakup between the people working at Mythic Quest Rob and you know Charlotte are coming back but the other three are breaking off onto their own so I'm assuming there's going to be some like conflict going on between those two groups you know 
especially with like a show like Mythic Quest, it was really fun to find um, uh, one of my jobs uh, was to find all the interstitials in between that were little video game kind of snippets that were kind of relevant to the story in each episode, but it, it was visualized in a video game of they have a few partners that they work with. Like one of them is League of Legends, you know, so it was my job to go through those video game snippets and kind of find portions that were relevant to the story in the script. And that was always really fun just because you never know what you find in those things. And I kept finding gems that worked perfectly with the story being told. So I, I became known as like the, the, the video game editor um, who was like, I was constantly sifting through all this video game footage because they were like, she's, I don't know, it's just one of her things. She's just good at finding these video game snippets. You <laughs> know, like, I'll do it, you know, I'll, I'll do anything on the show. But yeah, that was it. It's really fun doing stuff like that. There's always something unique to each show like that. Finding video game footage like that was very unique to Mythic Quest. And on one of the episodes I worked on, which uh, it was a flashback to when uh, both Poppy and Ian were younger. I got to go back and find all this uh, Mortal Kombat footage on <laughs> and kind of go through that do temp vfx and kind of put it into the little tv for the cuts and stuff like that because i have a lot of experience in online editing so i've done a lot of visual effects work where you paint things digitally and kind of all the little anything that you see that's on a tv that's uh, being played in a show is always added later so it's it's always you know you have to track that tv and then put put in the footage that you want so that was also one of my jobs uh, on Mythic Quest was like any sort of tracking and uh, temp visual effects. I would always ha add those in. On another show that I worked on, Mo, I got to do a lot of translating, and I, I was I was getting like pretty good at translating uh, Spanish to English because I have a background in a lot of years of Spanish, but I'm just a little out of practice. But on that show, I did a lot of subtitling where I was translating and that was also fun kind of like getting back into Spanish and getting better at it because, you know, the more I started doing the subtitles, I would send them off to our producer who spoke Spanish and he was like, you're getting really good at this. Like, I don't even have to translate for you anymore. I'm like, oh, wow. Like, I learned so much from every job, you know, but... It's, it's always like the little things like that that make it fun for me. It's like, because there's always something different on every job. A big part of editing and moving up in this within the system is kind of the mentor system, um, which is somebody takes you under their wing, they take a chance on you, and then um, you kind of start to move along with them in whatever television or films that they're um, working on. And then you somehow get that bump up you know out of sheer luck or just being at the right place at the right time you know that I've always found like very encouraging in this in the editing world is that it's very mentor based and it is about connections and staying in touch with those people because when you get down to it it you know everybody knows everybody in in the post world at the end of the day because it's almost like six degrees of Kevin Bacon but in post <laughs> Like, right. uh, you know, this editor who knows five editors, who knows 10 editors, you know, and it goes on and on. So every editor that I've, you know, studied or looked up or um, kind of started to research, I've noticed that every woman has had at least one mentor, if not more. I didn't really see anybody who just kind of started on their own, maybe in the early silent days, but then it just starts going mentor based. Um I just think that's awesome that women are dedicated in that sense to passing on the torch. And it feels like in editing to me that there's not really this sense of high levels of competition. It's more like when a person puts out a great cut, you're just sitting there and you're admiring it because you're like, damn, what a great cut. I mean, even recently Oppenheimer was edited by Jennifer Lame. I mean, and I was just blown away when I watched that. And your first thought uh, is not to be like, damn, I wish that was me. It's like, oh, damn, that's a great cut. Like that just made cinema history, you know? And it, 
there's like this like high level of encouragement i feel like especially from women from woman to woman of encouraging each other helping them move up to the chair people want to help you succeed if they see if they see that you have talent and in any way they can people want to help you and you just have to be willing to ask for help so which that was a hard lesson for me to learn you know it <laughs> It's it is hard to ask for help for a long time, but at a certain point when you do and you realize the benefits of working with somebody like Rob McElhenney, he has so many resources at his disposal. You know, it's um, and he's the type of person who if he sees that you're talented, he wants to help help you succeed as well. So there's just always been in in my position um, or from from how I've seen it. I don't think that's the case in every uh, profession, especially for women, because I know that it gets it gets even more competitive when you're talking about other jobs in the industry. I think the percentage is low, but I, I don't know how many female cinematographers there are. You know, I, I think it's low. And one of the questions that I I would love to to explore or maybe even answer in my forthcoming documentary is, you know, why women in particular thrive in editing more than any other job in the profession. I mean, and it's been that way since the beginning when they were considered just cutters instead of editors. Yeah, I really like what you're saying about uh, mentors, uh, the editors that I've interviewed on this show Everyone talks about that, that they're mentoring the next one and that when you are an assistant editor to an editor, they're taking you, like you said, to show, to show, to show, which is kind of nice, too, because I think that is a very intimate relationship that you have. And when you really work well with somebody, you want to bring them to other things. And then eventually you want them to fly on their own, too. And then they teach the next person. So. I think that that's yeah. just really cool what you said. On that note, dive into you're working on creating a new documentary called Out of Frame. It's a you know, story about female editors, which I think is just so awesome. And like you were saying, I mean, back in the day, there were a lot of female editors. That was the department to be in as a female. What made you decide, hey, I want to do a documentary and highlight them? Well, it's, it's funny because um, it was a couple of different things. I used to go to a lot of MPEG events or Motion Picture Editors Guild. They have uh, events periodically that are free to members where, you know, you could learn things in a class or you can also just go to lectures. And they had one that was called the Women's Steering Committee for a while, um, and it would just focus on women in the industry and editors in particular, of course. I went to a few of those and it was just great seeing all these women come together and want to learn about other female editors and how much of it that hasn't been exposed or hasn't been written about or filmed just because editors tend to get kind of buried in the background. And that's one of the reasons why I called it out of frame is because uh, we are literally just out of frame. We are outside of, you know, that that space of the of the set, you know. It helps us in in great ways where it's like we're fresh eyes, but at the same time, we are our own thing and we're in our own world. I wanted to expose how many and, and show throughout history how many classic films and even films that maybe people consider to be masculine films or films that uh, men love uh, maybe more than women have actually been edited by women. A lot of people have been after they see the the tr the teaser that I made, um, they'll respond to me and they'll say, "I had no idea that all those movies were edited by women. I just had no clue." And that's only a fraction um, that I put in the teaser, you know. And there are probably a hundred movies in there, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. No one's ever really told their story. I mean, I've seen one documentary about a specific editor, Jill Billcock, um, which was very well done. But there hasn't been this very overall kind of uh, historical document or reference where this kind of this film tells us the history in real time of like what the the function of women as they started to now and how editing has changed and how women changed editing in particular over the years. So 
that was definitely a huge part of it was going to those steering committee events and seeing the interest sparked. I mean, if even if I mentioned making a documentary about it, I mean, I heard, I saw people just clap like they would clap immediately. And I was like, OK, well, they want to see this, you know. I worked on this documentary uh, around the same time called Unrest, and the editor on it, uh, Kim Roberts, she, because uh, uh, every uh, job that I work on, um, you know, you look up your editor and you do research and you see what they've worked on before. And I saw that I came across this New York Times article that Kim had, uh, she had been quoted in uh, a few years prior. And she was just talking about uh, women in editing and um, kind of an intimate relationship between female editors and male directors and things like that. And they were kind of going into details about that. And it's like, well, I'm I'm working with Kim, you know, and like I could definitely reach out to her and ask her, you know, some questions because she's a seasoned documentary editor. So and then um, another funny uh, source of uh, this documentary was I I also saw a clip from uh, the comedian Patton Oswalt, one of his uh, Netflix specials. He actually has a whole bit about how he's like all the movies in the past that have all been directed by men and edited by women. He's like, you know what that means? They were ed- they were directed by women. He was like, it means the woman made the movie. And so, you know, I was like. I mean, even Patton Oswalt, this comedian, and he starts, you know, listing off this whole list. He's like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. He's like Pulp Fiction, Raging Bull, even Taxi Driver. He just starts naming all these movies. He's like, all these movies that you think are so masculine and you have all your college posters up. He's like, that was made by a woman, <laughs> you know, so the the way he put that and then, you know, all of these kind of other things coming together, I was like, obviously people want to hear about these women and um unfortunately for the women who have passed away and it's been a long time um some of them they have very limited resources of you know recordings and and things like that so it's going to be maybe few and far between for some of the very older ones but i'm hoping once i go through all the the great resources that we have in los angeles like the margaret herrick library I'm hoping to put the best stuff in the documentary when it's finally done so that everybody kind of sees the entire history throughout. A good kind of example that I saw a few years ago that I thought would be kind of a great outline for my documentary was uh, a film that this woman, Amy Scott, made called Hal, a documentary about um, the director, Hal Ashby who uh, directed Harold and Maude and The Last Detail and Being There and so many other classic movies, and who was an editor in his own right. She made a great documentary on him just specifically, and she had footage from uh, Hal Ashby's funeral of Warren Beatty speaking, which was, um, I mean, it was, it was just very well done. She had very rare things that she found, and he was he was just a really cool person and she showed like a great side of him and had a great uh, aesthetic throughout the documentary so i was hoping to kind of model out of frame on that film and um, a few others um stanley kubrick's uh the documentary about him is very useful as well um a part of me, as I was coming up with this idea, I kept going through looking for documentaries about filmmakers, and most of them are about directors. And then if they are about editors or, you know, a lot of books about editors are about male editors. So um, with all of that combined, I was just like, um, I mean, I feel like these women's stories are like screaming to be told because there are some there's some crazy things that people have no idea about that that women were doing, like Margaret Booth, who was a famous editor at MGM, who then went on to become an executive producer and was kind of the head of, I believe, the head of the the head of MGM at one point, if I'm not mistaken. She has a famous quote where she talks about um, doing dailies uh, cuts and actually being rushed over to Pasadena or downtown Los Angeles and editing in the car um, on the way over so that she could show these uh, dailies and kind of show a string out. And I was thinking to myself, like, 
how in the world in that time did you edit in a car and like get that done like on the way somewhere you know these women's stories are largely untold uh, i mean you can find books about them and chapters about them definitely but even in the past year um just a handful of movies edited by women that are getting rave reviews my ultimate goal for the film is uh, for it to be shown in uh, universities. But I feel like if I had seen something like that when I was in college and I saw the power of women in editing, I probably would have gotten here a little bit faster. No, but you're going to be for the next generation. You know, in making this film, then you're giving women an opportunity or girls an opportunity to go, oh, I could do that and showing uh, the trials and tribulations. And, you know, what I think what kind of saddens me is that some of the greats, you know, are now in their 80s. I feel this urgency. You got to interview them now because they're not going to be around forever. And wouldn't this be the ultimate ending is to say, I got to share my journey and, and be a part of something bigger. And also, I mean, there's so many different ways you can go with this. Like you just said, the relationship between the editor and the director. I mean, so many directors keep their editors. They, from film to film to film to film. And a lot of these are male directors that have female. And and unfortunately with uh, Quentin Tarantino, his uh, last editor had passed Absolutely. away. Yes. So, you know, I, and he worked with her for years. It, it is a, a collaboration, and, and I also wanted just to say one other thing like that you mentioned is, I think there, there are three. It's the writer, the director, and then all, the editor, and the editor is the one that actually puts it all together, make it, for, for better or for worse, makes it make sense. So I just thought you, when you said that, I was like, you're right. I mean, it, it really is the director, the editor is directing from editing. Yes. You said it more eloquently than I just did, but <laughs> you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's there are a lot of stories like that as well. Like Viola Lawrence was a huge editor. She edited for uh, Orson Welles a couple of times, um, and I thought it was very interesting. She was she was not afraid to give her opinion, and you know, she went straight up to Orson Welles and was like, "I need more close-ups from you, buddy." It's like, well, she she was not shy about just asking for what she needed, you know, so that Orson Welles was famously not really involved in the editing process. He would kind of just jump to the next project because he was really into the directing side. But, you know, he thought an editor has a job and that's my editor. So go ahead and do it. You know, she actually was responsible for a lot of those shots that you see in something like The Third Man because she was asking him for close ups or she was asking him for extra shots that he didn't get and that's a huge director i mean it's the director of citizen kane you wouldn't think that behind the scenes his editor was had to ask him for close-ups i wouldn't think that about orson wells you know just learning about all this stuff uh and learning about uh women standing up for their cut too you know dd allen famously uh introduced the avant-garde or uh French New Wave type of editing into kind of the United States with Bonnie, Cl uh, Bonnie Clyde, Bonnie and Clyde, you know, they were doing it in films in France, like Breathless, Jean-Luc Godard was kind of doing, you know, the jump cuts or a triple cut and moving on to the next scene. And that's very much the style that Dee Dee Allen was emanating in Bonnie and Clyde. Warren Beatty had to fight tooth and nail with the studio executive because they wanted to fire her over her editing style because uh, they were they were looking at the uh, rough cuts and they're like, what is this? You know, this isn't a Hollywood movie. And Warren Beatty was like, I'm sorry, but you're not firing her. And he actually paid the rest of her salary for the remainder of Bonnie and Clyde to keep her on the film. Um, so he was heavily involved in uh, producing that movie and, and making it what it was. It just takes somebody like a smart guy like Warren Beatty to believe in Dee Dee Allen and be like, no, you're not going to fire her because I'm not going to let you. Uh, Dee Dee Allen never faltered. You know, she never said, oh, well, I'll change my cut so that the executives will like it. It's like, no, she stood up for the cut and she was right there with Warren Beatty like, let's do this, you know. 
I thought that was great that that women felt empowered in that position as well. And I mean, another great story that I just heard recently was about the great Margaret Booth, who at the time was an executive, I believe, at MGM. And the film Point Blank, it's very well edited and it's kind of the precursor to The Limey by Soderbergh. It's uh, kind of this editing going back in time and you're maybe not sure at what time period you're in, but there's kind of like a rhythm and a smoothness to it. After Margaret Booth had seen this, you know, rough cut of Point Blank, which is uh, a lot of people regard it as a masterpiece these days, a lot of the other executives were like, what is this editing style? You know, like this is all over the place. We don't even understand this. And then Margaret Booth just, in my mind, the camera pans over to Margaret Booth, you know, and she's just like, don't touch a cut at all. Like, do not do not change a cut in this in this film. Leave it as is. And it was like the final say. It was like the queen has spoken, you know, like the editor of that film. Uh, he was I believe he was telling the story and he was like, I, I, I almost I almost died right there because I had, you know, Maggie Booth saying that uh, don't touch don't touch this at all. It's a masterpiece, you know at the end of the day like she wore the pants and that was that was the movie that came out they didn't they didn't touch it so i think it's important for women to know these stories because again they're just so largely untold i had to kind of sift through multiple sources and and articles over time to find all these little uh anecdotes that i'm telling because a lot of them had just never been recorded with an interview, which I thought was crazy. You know, I'm like, how did how did no one ever just be like, well, let's talk about how you edited this? You know, it's just. Yeah. But um, hopefully, you know, a lot of the the people who are more well known have some well documented interviews. Um, I know Margaret Booth has a great one at the Academy Library, which I'm looking forward to. Um, and I've heard a lot of more recent interviews as well. And I've I've attended a lot of uh, American Cinema Editors Guild panels because um, uh, one of the moderators, Bobby Osteen, who's a great editor in her own right and author, she's been doing a series of lectures on edited by women. So it's she picks a specific editor. The last one was um, Barbara McLean, who was a, a famous editor back in the 50s and 60s. Um, and she just kind of goes through their history. You know, I thought things like that would be great to incorporate and, you know, to talk to people like Bobby and um, to incorporate professors as well. Because I know, like you said about people uh, getting up there in age and um, kind of feeling that sense of urgency. Um, I know Janine Basinger, who's a a very uh, well-versed professor on uh, women in filmmaking, especially in editing. I mean, I would love to have her speak in the documentary because I, she just knows about everybody from, you know, the 1910s to, to now. So, but I know it's like you said, I think she's in maybe getting into her late 80s now. So I am feeling that sense of urgency for a lot of people because I really would like to hear some great stories as well. Just because um, it, it, it's funny, even when I uh, just posted that teaser and I had a few editors respond to me with positive feedback and saying, like, I'm so glad you're making this. They would also respond with a little anecdote Um about you know someone that they worked with and I was like oh my gosh like everybody has a story you know and everybody has a cool story I mean a recent editor that I was speaking with Sandra Adair who uh, just edited Hitman Richard Linklater's recent film and she's a longtime editor for Richard um, she's done pretty much all of his movies you know when she responded to my Instagram positively she was uh she was telling me a story about how one of her mentors was verna fields who uh was the editor of jaws and i mean a bunch of other stuff uh, peter bogdanovich's editor as well she actually worked with verna when she was and when she worked on jaws she uh house sat in her guest house and i was like well 
I mean, like everyone is connected, you know, everybody has a story about someone like a classic editor and everybody came up learning from somebody who was awesome or I mean, even the the women with uh, a lot of male mentors, like I said, I'll go to the movies and I'll see assistant editors who have now become big names in their own right. It's so great to see the latter, you know, um, as as movies come out and as people keep editing, you you see what they're how they're moving up and what they're working on. Well, and I think you brought up a good point, like as you start reaching out and getting people interviewed, even if somebody has passed away, they worked with somebody who's still living, who could tell their story, tell anecdotes from working with them or I think this is it just is giving me goosebumps because it's like you still can bring them in through other people's talking about them and working with them and what they were like um who do you do you have anybody that is on board right now or you're still working on uh I saw the list whoa <laughs> list. I know it's, but it's such a long list <laughs> but it's okay because I feel like not everyone will say yes. You know, there's always that. So I think the longer Absolutely. the list and then you just put it out there and then you just the right people are the ones that are going to be in the film. I'm now getting to the point where um, I think in these next few months, I am going to start uh, formally asking people to sit for an interview. Um, and hopefully, uh, like you said um, earlier, we can... Um, maybe schedule some interviews during the same days so that it's limited time with renting cameras if that's the route we choose to go um, filming the interviews. It would be great if uh, we could raise money to buy a camera and then that won't be an issue. It would just be scheduling editors whenever they're free. Just from the initial feedback that I've gotten that I'd a lot of people are would be excited to sit down for an interview for this just because these are people who are commenting and uh, speaking with me who just watched their own movie in the teaser that they watched. So it was, uh, so I know they feel acknowledged and I know they feel their story is going to be told. So pour out any information they have about their career. Dana Globerman, who is... Uh, Jason Reitman's editor has spoken about the editing relationship being compared to um, kind of like a work husband and wife. So she she kind of put it in those terms, definitely, where it's like this relationship that um, where they feed off each other in a work husband wife type of way. Um, I'm glad you said that because I was going to say that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that that's what I was thinking is it's kind of like a husband and wife thing. Um, mm -hmm. But the Woman King was a, a female director and female editor. Absolutely. There, there are definite exceptions. And I mean, uh, I know um, Tara Lynn Shropshire, the, the editor of The Woman King, she uh, has worked with that director multiple times before. I, I mean, I loved The Woman King. I thought it was so well done. And I thought it was underrated, honestly, during Oscar time. But there are a couple of female relationships that uh the they're coming into play more recently and i'm i'm thinking um that there is kind of a transition happening now um now that you mention it there is um the editor of uh the recent movie that came out bottoms which was kind of a high school fight club type of movie that was a female director female editor i know jodie foster has used a female editor a couple of times and Olivia Wilde has used a female editor. So I think more recently that is kind of shifting to where um, you are seeing the female relationships more. I honestly, I would like to see more of that just because um, I'm always kind of jealous of those relationships uh, that you see that are formed in college where it's like editor and director met in college and then we went on to, you know, uh, make, make uh, cool stuff together. Um, cause I think I believe that 40 is years. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that is the story with, uh, the editor of bottoms. I, I think they all went to NYU together and they knew each other, um, in college. Yeah. And now they're just working together on every film and 
Um, I haven't seen that yet, but I did see um, her first film, which was uh, Shiva Baby, um, that was made into a feature from a short. And um, that was really well done. Also edited by the same female editor, Hannah Park. Yeah, I, I, I'm really liking the collaborations between women lately. There's a really there, there's a collaboration and a gel that goes on when when I feel like you have a, a team of women that really like respect each other and um, work well together. Um, and honestly, it doesn't happen to me a lot. I end up working with a lot of uh, men for some reason. <laughs> yeah, um, me too. But um, yeah, I'm I'm usually surrounded by men. But um, either way, I'm I I'm always I, I'm always here for collaboration. Yeah, and I, I look forward to see where you go with your film and exploring the dynamics of female editors that work with mostly male. What was that about? I mean, men are great. You know, there's mm-hmm. nothing yeah. nothing wrong with yeah. working with men. I, and I think, you know, and maybe it's just the energy of the person, too. You know, I tend to gravitate to more. Uh, I work with a lot of men, and it seems to be the energy that maybe... I cultivate or something. And, and yes, I would love to work with more female editors, directors, you know, and the gamut. Um, But sometimes maybe it's just like who you're kind of surrounded with is kind of who you pick. So it'd be interesting to hear the female editors that work with female directors. What is that relationship? How did you get connected? And, and then also, um, you know, is it a conscious choice or is it just what's in your sphere and then that's who you choose, you know, or or like you said, I grew up with these people. We were all filmmakers together and that's how I just kept picking the same person. So it wasn't, you know, like an intentional, just kind of more, you know, who I'm around. So I'm I'm really kind of excited to hear about your journey uh, in this film and interviewing. And I hope you definitely keep us posted on on your progress. When do you hope to maybe ha- and you're doing all the post work for this yeah. film mm-hmm. when when do you yeah. think you're gonna be what's your do you have an outline or a goal to hey I want to shoot all these interviews in the next year or two like I'm hoping to have um the majority of interviews done within the next year um and then I'll just be editing as I go because I have kind of um a general outline of how I want the film to look and um how I want it to play and I do uh I want it to play in kind of chronological order where you're seeing it from the very beginning and then to what it is now um and then uh just having as many examples to show as I can and hopefully as many subjects as I can because um I really would love to also get a lot of those directors who have long-time relationships with these women to speak on camera as well um, I mean, it would be great. You know, the dream is like the big, the big five, like the Scorsese's, the Tarantino, you know, and uh, people like that who had these longtime relationships. Because I, so many quotes that I've heard from directors like Robert Altman is a great example. He's um, he's not with us uh, for a while now, but um, he, his longtime editor Geraldine Peroni, who is also unfortunately not with us, but they had a great collaboration together and he was always saying to himself, which I thought was funny um, when he was editing something or directing something like the player, he would say to himself like, Oh, Jerry's not going to like that. Like he was all, he always had Geraldine in his head, you know, kind of telling him like um, as his little angel and devil, like don't do this or don't do that. Um, So they, you know, I always hear about these very intimate relationships where they can kind of, Um, predict each other's choices and moods and things like that and I thought that was very interesting and very I mean that's very intimate to it's it's something that you you only think that you would know with maybe uh, your domestic partner or something Um, but you start to pick up on those things just by being in close quarters I think with people yeah and yeah and then it like you just said, it's like you have this relationship with the person. So you already know ahead of time, you know, oh, they need that close up. That's what they're going to ask for or, you know, whatever it is. So I think that that's really cool. Well, I I'm excited to see where your film takes you. 
and uh, the progress. And I hope you keep that on social media and post us with your upcoming interviews and all that. So I wish you well Absolutely. with uh, the future of that. Thank you so much. Yes. I'm I'm hoping for the best, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I encourage you to get out there and make a film. Reach out to your local filmmakers group to get involved and connect. Please subscribe to the show if you like it. And follow me on Instagram at Tammy McGarrow. Until we meet again, what's your story?